Bro, bro, yo, do you even stretch, bro? Welcome to Therapist in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner. Welcome back to Therapist in Motion podcast. This is Dan hosting once again. Today, I am joined by two amazing and brilliant therapists, Mr. K2. Hello. And our director of our Fountain Hills Clinic, Mr. John Klein. Hi, guys. So as John alluded to so eloquently in our <laughs> intro, our listen bait, he's talking about the concept of do you even stretch, bro? So where, where we're headed on this podcast is we're going to go a little bit more philosophical and we're going to talk about the differentiation of stability versus mobility. So I'm going to ask you guys a question to start off. Do all stability issues stem from a mobility deficit in the same joint or someplace else? And I do apologize because early on, my biggest critique was there are so many abstract podcasts that you can't really take away anything concrete for the next day in the clinic. But it's very fun to talk about, and hopefully there's some good takeaways um, from this podcast. This question stemmed from a discussion I had as a younger therapist with Dan and Sarah and Paul um, regarding mobility and stability. And if all stability issues, like Dan said, stem from a mobility deficit somewhere, I immediately wanted to, again, play devil's advocate and try to find examples of when that wasn't true. Um, and, you know, it's led to a couple of good conversations that hopefully K2 and Dan can also um, help us with. But you didn't answer my question. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> can you repeat the question? So no, do, I'm just kidding. Do all mobility, do all stability deficits start from a mobility deficit in the same joint or a, a, a nearby by joint? I'm going to go with No. K2? Not all of them. For example, if you have some traumatic event, all the joint throughout the body is within normal limit. Then all of a sudden you had a laceration on the muscle, cannot fire it. That lacks stability. But that's not coming from mobility. But that can be an extreme, you know, uh, example. But Okay, K2. So what about a competitive swimmer been swimming all their life super strong shoulders, then one day they retire, stop lifting, stop working out, and develop shoulder pain because of you know instability to their shoulder? That's a good question. That's a good question. I'm thinking, so question, sorry. <laughs> You're good. So question was more, all, the more, all the stability issues coming from mobility, lack, lack of mobility, okay, okay. In that sense, no. Cause that high issue is coming from uh, too much mobilities, then uh, maybe after she retires, muscle function get less, then it got weaker, so that they don't have a stability, so that creating hypermobility. Gotcha, and that's a good distinction that I didn't really think about either, which is not just a a hypo mobility somewhere, but a hyper mobility somewhere. Yeah, I, I think that's a great thing to contemplate. Now I'm gonna probably not answer this very eloquently because I hadn't thought about it very much, but I would say, okay, if we think about a high level swimmer probably have adequate or more motion 
than what we would consider typical, right? But if they're a high-level swimmer, they're in this pool a lot, and they are putting lots of meters on their system in the similar range of motion all the time, creating a almost a pre-programmed arc of strength based on the stroke that they're swimming. So when they stop providing strength because of the resistance in the, in the principles of the water in that given arc, and like K2 said, they lose strength in that given arc, they may have lots of motion, but now they don't have the control of that entire motion. Yes, maybe they lost a little bit of motion compared to what they had because they were always stretching, bro, or getting <laughs> stretched, whether it's good or bad. And now they stop getting stretched, so they lose a little bit of motion. But more importantly, like K2 said, they've lost strength throughout the arc of motion. So now it's created instability and or classified as hypermobility because they already may have had more motion than normal. And then they lost a bit, little bit, but it still may be considered more than normal. So you would not do any mobility interventions for this patient? Depends. Because they may have lost mobility. Let's say, okay, let's go back to the shoulder. Maybe they haven't lost mobility at the glenohumeral joint, but they have at their acromial clavicular joint or their sternoclavicular joint or their scapula or their hip and pelvis. And that could be then leading to a compensatory motion because they've lost mobility someplace else that is impacting their chain reaction firing sequence. And now they're compensating because of a mobility deficit someplace else. So I'm going to say it depends. I need to look further. And I think you're probably going to come to the same conclusion, even though you've got that look in your eyes, like you're still going to play devil's advocate, um, <laughs> that I need to look further before I determine if it's truly a mobility deficit at their glenohumeral joint. Great point. Uh, so for that specific client, probably I'm not going to provide mobility to expand end range, that kind of mobility, but maybe I can work on the quality of the mobility. Mm. Maybe humeral head may be sitting too much anteriorly, so that even within that, you know, mid-range, they have some impingement, some issues. And maybe scapula is not sitting in the right place that enhances uh, humeral head sits even more forward. Or maybe rib cage, those kind of stuff. So, yes, it depends, just like Dan said. Yeah, probably I'm going to provide some type of mobility intervention, but not to the point of like trying to expand the range of motion. Gotcha. So you're saying in the specific joints, you might have different planes, different motions that there could be a mobility deficit that you would target. Yes. yes. So, so, okay, great. So would you ever treat somebody, again, shoulder, hip, ankle, where maybe they have a frontal plane mobility deficit, but a transverse plane stability deficit? Yeah. So to our listeners, I apologize because <laughs> you're going to need to pause and listen to that question probably as as many times as I had to when I first read it, right? So how do you approach a scenario when you find a mobility and a stability deficit in different planes within the same joint, 
right? And I think if we either talk about the shoulder or the hip, oftentimes we'll see transverse plane instability with a mobility deficit in either the frontal or the sagittal plane, right? That's probably where we see it most frequently. Or you could argue we see a transverse plane deficit in the hip from a mobility deficit and a sagittal plane instability, which could lead to anterior hip impingement, right? They, they've got limited hip mechanics for similar reasons to K2 said at the shoulder, that femoral head sits too far anteriorly, or their pelvis doesn't have enough mobility, which is the equivalent of the scapula, right, in the pelvis, uh, or in the femoral joint. So I, I, I'm going to have to take a long time to think about how I would address somebody who has a mobility deficit and a stability deficit in the same joint in different planes. Okay, let's uh, let's maybe go a little more concrete. Because <laughs> um, let's not totally confuse our yeah, listeners, yeah. John. So otherwise, I'm not going to invite you back. Do, yeah, it's been fun. <laughs> do you ever just stretch someone without providing them stability, neuroread in the new range of motion you've got? Absolutely, one hundred percent. No, never. If I do that, I am setting them up for injury. And I, boy, genius photographic memory isn't on this pod, but he probably has the stats somewhere that says exactly what the percentage is of the probability that somebody's going to get hurt when you provide new range of motion and don't stabilize it. But unfortunately, from my experience, this has happened where I've given somebody too much range of motion that they weren't able to control and they come back the next session and they're not necessarily injured, but they have a significant level of soreness. And I've seen their range of motion revert back to less than it was the session when I gave them more motion. I agree with Dan. Um, from my uh, own experience, within the session, I provide uh, greater mobilities, but we didn't even tap into any stability or actively utilizing the range. Many cases, they're going to come back with the same range of motion. So same ideas, you know, it's providing the range of motion, greater range of motion, but they didn't have stability, so they couldn't even utilize it. If you don't use it, you lose it kind of stuff too, yeah. And I see that in a lot of the younger therapists that I work with is they like to do a lot of table mobs, a lot of soft tissue work, but they don't do necessarily the best job of doing a lot of re-education, a lot of PNF principles, end range, you know, agonist, and all that fun neuro stuff that you guys talk about. Uh, um, and uh, it's funny because even talking about billing, I talk about billing, I say, hey, you can jump from manual to neuro with this and, you know, get reimbursed a little bit more. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things that <clears> – <throat> Me going through the Institute of Physical Art classes, they talk a lot about joint efficiency or having a joint be on access. So if we relate it back to the pod that we recorded this morning of ankle sprains, they would say you need to get the talus quote unquote back on access and having a talus have efficient joint motion in all planes of motion with a springy soft end feel of that talus and of the joint capsule attached to it. And then you need to regionally provide neuromuscular motor control and then work to global functional integration. And if you don't have that mechanical joint efficiency first, it's gonna be really hard to get proper 
neuromuscular firing and then integrated into the global standpoint. So that's what I love about their treatment methodology is we're going to make a joint or a soft tissue more efficient. Then we're going to train that system how to fire, utilizing a lot of times PNF techniques, which is brilliant, right? And then we're going to integrate it into a functional movement pattern. And what is cool about that thought process is at that point they say, sure, go nuts, right? Take whatever approach you need to, and the, and, and the goals that that patient has for that functional integration. But if you, if you go from step mechanical efficiency to global, you're probably going to miss something. Now, that's the school of thought of Institute of Physical Art. And, and, and I can't disagree with that. So I agree with you of what you're trying to work with with, with your therapist in your clinic of, hey, you did a great job mobilizing that tissue, that soft tissue, that joint. Awesome. And then you did a great job of doing something from a functional standpoint, but you weren't having as much success, success as you anticipated in your head. Let's talk about things that we can do on a regional level that's close to that joint that gets the principles of PNF engaged to get some neuromuscular firing that probably also gets their core firing, which is hugely important, to then help provide stability, right? So do we buy into the premise that a tight muscle is or could be a weak muscle? No. Sometimes tight muscle can be overworking for those stabilizers that didn't work. Like, for example, sometimes like, uh, I learned in hard way, and Brett Fisher kind of guided me to understand this. Uh, in the past, when I had cervical you know, dysfunction clients coming here, and I provided uh, soft tissue mobilization, manual technique, improved the range of motion. Great. They felt so good. I never felt this loose before. Thank you so much. And coming back next visit, how are you feeling? Same. Well, you just told me last session you feel better. Well, but I'm telling you, it is what it is. You know, then Brett told me, you know, K2, have you thought about this? In the spine, they have two different kind of muscles. First muscle is more core muscle in a way, like small, like going to segment to segment. That is stabilizers. And also, on the other hand, big muscle, like movers, like trap, you know. So he said, smaller muscle, uh, those are going through the segments. They are designed to turn on all the longer time, so that more endurance, postural muscle. And bigger muscle, they are colon duty. So when they, are, they need to lift heavy stuff, they need to turn on. So metabolically, they're different. So that if somebody had a dysfunction, um, cervical spine, like whiplash, for example, because of trauma, ligament, primary stabilizer gets shot. So as those small muscle group too, they get strength. So their function is not there. So now they have hypermobilities. So but body seeks the stability. Somebody has to provide that big muscle joint. So they are going to work, stabilize those areas. But they're not designed to do that. So they're going to more spasm. So if we don't provide the proper stability from the stabilizer muscle, proper stabilization muscle, I just create instability. So the body seeks stability. So that going back to square, you know, uh, going back to um, uh, starting point. So that 
in that sense, I feel, you know, um, not necessarily weak muscle is tight muscle. So as close as we got to that in PT school was probably the, the you know, thought process of proximal stability for distal mobility, right? Thinking yeah. about the core muscles, kind of like K2 was alluding to. Um, I also kind of like what I've heard of if you provide mobility without also providing stability, you're creating instability. So explain to me why you would have somebody do a stretch for a tight muscle if you're just going to have to follow up with eccentric end range loading, something to re-educate that muscle so it'll maintain that new elongated position. Ooh. Kind of a barn burner. I'm going to turn it back on you and tell me, you stop asking questions and answer your own question. <laughs> I thought I was leading this uh, podcast. No, but that's the whole point. Do you even stretch, bro? Is there a reason to stretch someone if you really just need to strengthen them and load them? I think that that's a, there's probably multifaceted answers there because how long does it take to actually get a stretch response in a muscle tissue and get fascial stretching if the fascia can indeed stretch, right? And what happens if you give somebody a little bit of a load in their hands? Do they actually get more mobility? Okay, so then that would tell us that it could be a stability or a muscle control component. But I would say, okay, the biggest thing would be people have tight hip flexors. Right? Would we all agree that that's probably the, the muscle that probably needs in, in the world of PT to be stretched the most yeah. is because we spend so much time sitting. And what plane of motion do people mostly stretch the hip flexors in? Uh, I'm going to take sagittal. Uh, I would say you're correct. <laughs> but if we anatomically look at the muscle fiber orientation of, ilios, of the iliacus and the psoas, it's in what plane of motion it has the most fiber orientation. Uh, transverse. Right. <laughs> so I would argue that, okay, we can stretch a muscle, but are we stretching the muscle in the fiber orientation to assist with maximal elongation? Knowing that, yes, I understand and I know you're, where you're probably going to go. There's a three-dimensional component of all muscle fibers. I agree. And I think we would all agree if we went back and had the ability to look at cadaver dissections and or look at really good anatomy atlases that you're going to see multi-directional fibers of every single muscle. I don't think anybody or the vast majority of people would debate us on that, right? So why are we not focusing our stretching efforts in the plane where the fiber orientation is the most dominant and then taking a principle of, okay, I'm going to give you four points of stability. So I'm going to use my hands to provide early on stability while I'm getting mobility, right? And then I'm gonna gradually take my hand support away or my soft tissue mobilization away while they're doing that stretch or my jaku mobilization or my, you know, whatever that additional tool is, FMR, you name it. I'm gonna take that away. I'm gonna gradually take their hands away. So now they've gotten more range of motion, more stretch out of the muscle as you, as you said, but they're now working to provide stability in that new range of motion. And then maybe I get them to that new end range of motion and I, they're gonna do a, a, a contract relax, a hold relax at that area to reactivate the sarcomeres and the proprioceptors at the new end range. And then perhaps when they go back and sit back down on the rear end, 
They don't feel as tight the next time they stand up. That was a really long-winded answer. Sorry, but... I love it. But also you have a great pearl that we can take from this abstract podcast and use tomorrow in the clinic, which is providing increased points of stability is useful for gaining mobility and then reducing points of stability is how you're going to provide stabilization. So let's think about that hip flexor stretch where you have two feet on the ground, two hands on a doorway or in the cage, and you're driving maybe even in all three planes. That's a great place to start. But then what if we do take one point of stability away, one hand, and start doing an overhead posterior reach as we drive into that hip extension, see how successful we are with that, then take our second hand, reach both hands overhead as we're driving into that hip extension. And heck, maybe we even have them start doing a step while they're going into that. So now we've progressed from four points of stability and doing a stretch to a stepping exercise with two, three drivers to elongate and load that new tissue and teach it how to utilize this new end range of motion. I think that's a fantastic immediate clinical pearl for people because it's, it, it's practical. It's, safe, right? And for the vast majority of people, they're going to feel really good after that progression because so many people have this sense that they have tight hip flexors, right? Because we sit so much. So I, I think that that's, that's a phenomenal thing for our listeners to visualize in their head and then stand up and try because a doorway and a chair and then you take away a hand and then you take away two hands and then you step up onto the chair um, to drive that increased hip extension. And then, you know, you make it even more dynamic and, and get to the second phase, push off phase of gate and have them push off on their toe and drive that extra bit of hip, hip extension as it is in terminal phase of gate. I think if that was something that all of our listeners did tomorrow with their patients, we would see our inbox flood with, oh my gosh, that was so awesome. I can't believe that that had that much of an effect because it probably would. I like that. Yeah. Mobility, stability, we call more stability. So they coexist. So, but some oftentimes when we dissect our exercise prescription, we think about mobility, stability, black and white. But feels like that just like John you described was if black and white is there, that is too extreme. But as if we're using sliding bar or almost like a volume control, everything what we actually do in life is more like in between, gray. So that how much black we wanna utilize, how much white we wanna utilize, we are the one, we are that uh, creating, we are designing the exercise, we are creating uh, the program for the purpose. So that I feel like, you know, just like open up the listener's eyes to understanding what we can do is not necessarily just mobility, stability. We can be somewhere in between really coexisting mobility and stability. Then depending on how much mobility you want to apply or how much stability you want to apply, you can get more specific results. So I want to go back to my original question because I'm going to keep asking you questions. Um, of course you are. <laughs> you, you talked about this. So, so maybe this is more for like the, the new grads. How long does it take to induce creep, that lengthening of tissue? It's a great question. I, I think it's like three minutes. Okay. So the next question is how many of us are stretching our patients for three minutes? Oof, great question. 
And therefore, again, do you even stretch? Is it even worth stretching if we're not going to induce creep and we might be better off just doing that end range loading, especially eccentrically for proprioception to gain stability? So is that, I'm going to turn the question back on you then. So when you have a patient with adhesive capsulitis, are you utilizing low load at the end of their range to assist with tissue elongation and or more stability? Are you using the creep? Are you utilizing total end range time? Are you utilizing a combination of those? Or did I just completely throw a wrench in your thought process? No, that's, well, that's a great, that's a great question and a great point. Um, probably yes, <laughs> probably hopefully um, based on a patient's success, when I'm doing adhesive capsulitis, I'm looking at what plane, sagittal frontal transverse and top down or bottom up are they most successful in? And I'm starting there. And then I'm going through a progression of long, long, low, uh, low load, long amplitude, or hold it for a long time, and then slowly increase load to provide the stability. Because I know if I just stretch the heck out of that thing and don't stabilize it, it's probably not going to go as well as if I do provide some load. Yeah. So one thing I've been playing with is specific to adhesive capsulitis, potentially another clinical pearl for our listeners is what John just said. I may have gotten quote unquote normal range of motion back in one plane, but not in the other two, I may start providing dynamic stability with some load in the plane where I already have quote unquote normal range of motion. And oddly enough, when I do that, I usually see the other two ranges of motion that are limited mobility start to come back. And this is something I know you and I have emailed back and forth about is like, okay, what happens if I give them a really light load, a pound, a half of a pound, and they do a small oscillation really close to the end of their available range of motion. And then they go into a prolonged hold at end range. And you and I have both played with this a little bit. This has probably been a couple of years since we've this, had this, this conversation. But we see that work. And it still is a little befuddling to me of why it works. Is it because we're activating the proprioceptive differently? And we're getting some of those to activate because we've introduced a component of load even though it's very low load it, it that's introduced and stimulated their proprioceptive system differently and is there things that we can now work with our orthopedic surgeon colleagues to say hey maybe there is a benefit in letting us use really low load in extremely safe ranges of motion early on in a rehab protocol to assist with providing stability and, and controlled muscle firing that isn't going to provide any significant tissue stress, but enough that's going to activate the proprioceptors at an early onset that down the road is going to assist with more dynamic stability. Yeah, that's a great uh, example. Then I actually do have a current client who had uh, shoulder uh, labrum and loaded a cuff repair. And he almost started having pseudo, you know, show, uh, shoulder adhesive capsulitis-like symptoms. Then I turned into actually uh, more utilizing the prolonged stretch and actually activating at the end range too. So many cases, I, for example, in order to improve the elevation of the shoulder, I 
gradually improve the range of motion, possible range of motion. I stay within nearby end range. Then I ask them to like um, activate muscle to go into more scaption, you know, flexion, abduction, or opposite agonist antagonist. But I will stay in the end range. Then activating muscle, so my hand is there, but I'm purposefully adding different type of stimulation. Then many cases actually recently he started making lots of improvements. So that was I didn't tap into that like you know a few weeks ago but now looking back maybe I should have utilized from earlier stage. So here's a challenge um, for you know therapists treating. We treat you know sometimes based on diagnosis and I know you guys have a podcast about that but take a step back do a full body examination, full body evaluation, and try to determine is this primarily a mobility or a stability patient? Um, you know, an 80-year-old male versus a 13-year-old female might be very easy to <laughs> kind of pick and choose, but um, there's probably, of course, some in between. But then try to break it down even further and saying, okay, well, what specific joints, what specific motions require more mobility, and what specific joints or motions require more stability? If you want to take it one step further, look at a transformational zone, a TZ1 and gait. At all the motions, all those joints need to go into, see is there a link, a common chain of mobility deficits or stability deficits through that transformational zone. Um, I don't want to say it's like cheating, but it makes it really easy to know how to prescribe exercises and interventions if you can kind of think about that. So I think that's a great closing thought for our therapists and listeners to think about and off of that again we would love to hear your thoughts and your feedback um so you can email us at, at therapistinmotion at spoonerpt.com i want to thank john for uh kind of organizing this pod and providing some great stimulating questions thank k2 as always for joining us and providing his wisdom And we hope that all of you have a wonderful day and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app.